any of you ever go out and you want to, uh, to invest in something, anything from, say, a mutual fund to an annuity, you're going to get a prospectus. And somewhere in that prospectus, you're going to find these words because the SEC requires them to be in the prospectus. Here's what you'll see. It'll say this, past performance is no guarantee of future results. And that's really true. That's really true of a lot of things in life, isn't it? I mean, we really don't have guarantees about a lot of things in life in spite of the claims that some people will make. You know, if you turn on one of these infomercials on TV, they're probably going to guarantee you that that the product, whatever it is, they'll guarantee you it's going to last for a lifetime. Money-back guarantee. And sometimes the things last, and sometimes we get disappointed. I mean, if you book a, a seat on an airplane flight, you think you're pretty well guaranteed that you're going to get to fly on that flight, right? But then you show up at the airport, and they've overbooked your flight, and you no longer have a seat, or, or maybe the flight doesn't take off altogether, right? Some of you have experienced that. And the thing is in life that these, these guarantees, we find out that, that none of them are ironclad, that they're not 100%. And I suppose depending on how important the, the item is or the thing that you're working with it, is, you know, the more significant that might be. For instance, a, a few uh, months ago, I bought a, a frying pan, a new frying pan. I needed one because our old one was, wasn't working, and it was a non-stick pan, and it's guaranteed not to stick for life. Well, guess what? It doesn't always work that way, but you know what? The hassle of trying to find the receipt and take it back to the store and get another one, it's really just not worth it, even though there might be a guarantee there. But what about if I built a new house? And there were some significant problems with my house. Maybe the foundation was cracked or the roof was leaking. Now, if the builder didn't take care of those things or wouldn't or couldn't take care of those things, that would be a lot more significant, right? That guarantee would be a lot more important. Well, this morning we're going to talk about the thing that's most important for all of us in our lives, and that's our salvation. And if that the guarantee for our salvation isn't sure, then that's really not a good thing, is it? We're going to find out that it is indeed a sure thing because Jesus, our great high priest, has guaranteed it. Now, we've been talking about this really for the last several weeks as we've been in in Hebrews chapter 7, but today the author is going to kind of bring all of these things together and remind us of this guarantee that we have in Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them, open them up to uh, Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to finish the chapter up today. If you don't have your Bibles, there's some in the, the chairs in front of you. You can also go ahead and just read along on the screen as I read this morning. I'm going to begin reading this morning in verse 23, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. 
But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, I would suggest to you that within this passage this morning, we have probably what I would say is the most important verse in the entire book of Hebrews. And perhaps one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Now, there's only six verses here, so you have a one out of six chance. So which verse of these verses do you think is the, the key verse here? Which one is the most important? Anyone care to venture a guess? What's that? 27, okay. 24. Any others? Those are, those are all great verses. I'm going to say I really think it's verse 25. Because here's what it says. Why don't you read this out loud together with me? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And here's, I'm going to share what, with you why I think this is such an important verse here. Because what it tells us is this main idea we're going to look at this morning is that because Jesus saves completely, I can draw near to God confidently. Because Jesus saves completely, I can draw near to God confidently. Now we need to talk about, the first thing we really need to understand here is this whole idea of of being saved. We talk about it all the time, right? In the church, we talk about being saved. But what does it really mean? What, or maybe here's the question we need to ask. What am I saved from? That's probably an important question to answer, right? And there could be a lot of different answers, but I'm going to let the Scriptures just answer that question for us. And so I'm going to share with you four Scriptures. There's probably a whole lot more that I could share with you, but But these four scriptures, I think, will help us to understand what it is that we're saved from. So as I I read through these verses, I want you to kind of think about what do they have in common. The first one is in John chapter 3. It says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. How about this verse from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Here in Romans chapter 5 might be a familiar verse. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And one last one again from 1 Thessalonians. For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, according to those four verses, what is it that Jesus saves us from? Yeah, from the wrath of God, right? From the wrath of God. And we don't like to think about that. We don't like to talk about that a lot. And I know some of you probably grew up, I know some of you grew up in churches where that was, the wrath of God was emphasized so much that they're basically like trying to scare you into heaven. But the fact is that, that it is real, and it is something that we need to be safe from. We're all sinners, and we all deserve to suffer the consequences of our sin. We deserve to, to be enslaved to sin, which the Bible tells us we were before we put our faith in Jesus. 
We deserve the consequences of our sin. We deserve death, and most important of all, we deserve the final wrath of God, which involves hell in the lake of fire. And Jesus comes along, and, and he says that he is able to save us from all of that. But Jesus doesn't just save us halfway. That's why I think verse 25 is, is so important. It says here that Jesus saves us how? To the uttermost. This is one of those places where I'm really glad that the ESV kept the language from the King James Version because this, this, this word uttermost, it really describes the way in which Jesus saves us. If you're using the ESV, you'll have a footnote there that probably says that it can, the word, underlying Greek word could either mean completely or it could mean at all times. And the reason I like the word uttermost is because it kind of wraps all that up together because the salvation that Jesus provides, it is complete. It is perfect. But it also saves us for all times. It lasts not just for this lifetime, but it also lasts for eternity. And so Jesus saves us to the uttermost. It says that he is able, quote, to do that. We just sang about that this morning, right, that God is able. And the reason that, that Jesus is able to do that is because of the things that we've learned over the last few weeks. It's because he's this perfect high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's not like any other earthly priest. And because of the fact that, that God's wrath would remain on us, we, we've talked about the fact that we need a priest, but it has to be the right priest. So why is it that only Jesus is able to save us completely? We've talked about this, like I say, for the last couple of weeks, but, but the author kind of summarizes it here, and I'm going to share with you real briefly three things that he tells us about Jesus that make it really clear that Jesus is the only one who's able to save us completely. The first thing is that the sufficiency is the sufficiency of his life. talks about that in verse 26. It says that Jesus came to this earth, and he lived on the earth, and that he was tempted just like us in every way, and yet he was without sin. He was separated from sin. He never once sinned. And no other earthly priest, I don't care how righteous they are, can claim to have that kind of a life. The second thing we see here is the sufficiency of his death. It tells us here in verse 27 that, that in the, under the old covenant, the priests, they had to make sacrifices every day. They had to first make sacrifices for themselves, and then they had to turn around and make sacrifices for the sins of the people. And they had to do that day after day after day. But Jesus, when he came, it said his death was once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. That he only died once on the cross. And so that his death, that one-time death, was sufficient to pay for all the sins of mankind from the beginning of eternity to the end of eternity. And finally, we see here the sufficiency of the new life that he lived. You know what? If Jesus had just come and he'd lived a perfect life and he died on the cross, but he hadn't risen from the dead, that wouldn't be enough. He also had to rise from the dead and to live this new life. And it tells us that, that in this new life that he is seated at the right hand of God and that he is interceding for us. You know what that means? That means that every time you sin, when you confess your sin, that Jesus is right there at the, at the right hand of the Father and he's saying, 
Father, I died so that that sin could be forgiven. He says, Father, when, when you look at Pat or when you look at whoever it might be, don't see his sin, see me. He's now being clothed with my righteousness. And Jesus is doing that day after day, moment after moment. Now, we're never going to live our lives completely righteous, right? And so we need a Savior. We need a priest like that who's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. That's why only Jesus can save completely. Now, before we go on, there's one more phrase that I think we need to talk about here. It's in verse 28. And it says this. It says, Jesus was made perfect forever. This is a really important phrase because we could get the idea here, right, that that Jesus wasn't perfect and then somehow he became perfect. That he was a, somehow was a sinner who, who somehow became perfect. That's not at all what it was saying. Remember last week we talked about the idea of perfection? And we talked about the idea that that, that word, when it's used in the New Testament, it refers to completing a task or bringing something to completion or, or completing a goal. And the idea here is that's what Jesus did when he died on the cross and he rose from the grave. He completed the task that his father had given to him. And so he became perfect. He he completed that task when he rose from the grave. And that's really important for us, us to understand. Now, the thing is, not everyone gets this 100% guarantee of salvation, right? Jesus makes it available to everyone, but not everyone takes advantage of that. We all know people who have not, they've rejected that, even though though they know that maybe that Jesus died for their sins, but they, they refuse to put their faith in him. So we know that not everyone becomes a disciple of Christ. Not everyone has this guarantee. And it would be real easy to read this passage here and to to somehow conclude that my salvation is based on something that I do, right? Because what does it say here? He says, he saves to the uttermost. He saves completely those who what? Those who draw near to God through Jesus Christ. So we might think, well, that means that my salvation is dependent on the decision that I make. It's dependent upon me putting my faith in Jesus Christ. So it's based on something that I can do. But you know what? We've talked about this before. The Bible's really clear. Even the faith that we have to believe in Jesus Christ, you know what that is? It's a gift from God. It's not something that I can do on my own. None of us would ever do that on our own if, if it wasn't that God enabled that. Jesus talked about this. He made it really clear. John chapter 6, here's, here's what Jesus said about your ability to come to God. He said, no one. Not some. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So guess what? If you put your faith in Jesus, you can't take any credit for that because the only reason you did that is because God drew you and he enabled you to make that decision. Now, on the other hand, if you've decided not to to receive the salvation that, that God offers, you can't blame God for that if you choose not to. I know that's a hard concept to get across in our minds because we think it has to be an either-or kind of thing. But the fact is that that none of us on our own could come to Jesus unless God draws us. 
I, I came across this nugget this week. I, I'm not sure where it exactly came from or who first said it, but I think it really describes what we're talking about here. Here's what it said. It says, salvation isn't a matter of throwing a rope to a drowning man who has the ability to grab the rope. It's a matter of breathing new life into a man who has already drowned. Think about that for a moment. If you've already drowned, can you bring yourself back to life? Can't do it, right? Talked about this before, that, that especially in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about how we were dead in our transgressions and sin. And we've talked about how a dead man can't bring himself back to life. It's 100% dependent on God. So I hope you'll see why we've said this morning that because Jesus saves completely, I can draw near to God confidently. Now, there's an interesting thing about salvation, and we've talked about this before, that, that salvation really has three tenses or three aspects to it. There's the past tense of salvation. I was saved from the penalty of sin the very moment that I put my faith in Jesus Christ. We call that justification. And if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, that at the very moment you did that, you were clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. And Jesus no longer sees your sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. There's a present aspect of our salvation as well, right? Right now I am being saved. I'm being saved from the power of sin. Before I was saved, I didn't have any ability to overcome sin, but now Jesus has given me power. He's, he's given me the Holy Spirit to live within me so that I now have the ability not to sin in my life. We call that sanctification. It's the process of becoming more and more like Jesus each day. And then there's the future aspect of salvation that's going to come either when I die here on earth or when Jesus returns to this earth. And then when that happens, I'm going to be relieved from the presence of sin. There no, will no longer be any sin in my life. We call that glorification. Well, here in this part of the letter, the author is very clearly talking about this present aspect of our salvation. And we know that because in verse 25, He's using all present tense verbs here. So when it says he is able, what he's saying is Jesus is continuously able to save us. He can do it yesterday. He can do it today. He can do it tomorrow. He's, he's able to do it every day, moment by moment. To save, that's also present tense. So the idea is to keep on saving me. He keeps on pouring his power in my life. He keeps on helping me to be able to to overcome the power of sin in my life. And it says that that happens for those who draw near to God through Jesus. And the, the verb drawing near is also present tense. Keep drawing near. So there's kind of this, it almost seems contradictory to us, right? On one hand, I can't draw near to God unless Jesus enables me, unless God draws me. And yet, once I do that, I'm to continue to draw near to God day after day. That's the way I learn to become more like Jesus. That's the way that I deal with sin in my life. That's the way that I deal with difficulties in my life. That's the way that God pours in his grace and mercy so that when I go through the tough times in life, that I can survive through those things. And so we need to draw near. That's something that I have to do. I have to make a choice to continually draw near to God so that I can experience all that he wants 
to give to me. I love how Pastor John Piper describes what it means to draw near to God. He said this, he says, drawing near is not moving from one place to another. It is a directing of the heart into the presence of God who is as distant as the holy of holies in heaven and yet as near as the door of faith. He is commanding us to come, to approach him, to draw near to him. That's what Jesus wants us to do. He, he wants us to experience not just the past and the, and the future aspects of salvation, but this present tense of salvation right here and now. And we do that by drawing near to him. So how do I do that? I'm going to share with you this morning three things. And you've, these are nothing new. This is nothing that you don't already know. I'll guarantee you that. But what I do, hope to do this morning is maybe to give you a little different perspective or a little different way to approach some of these things that we do in order to draw near to God. So the first thing is that I want to get to know God through his word. Usually, I would just tell you, read your Bible, right? How many times have you heard that? Like, almost every week, right? And we ought to read His Word. We ought to do it consistently. We ought to read all of His Word. But I want you to think about this in a little different way. Here's how I like to think of it. I, when I first started dating Mary, I wanted to spend time with her. Because I wanted to get to know her. I wanted to know the things that she liked. I know, wanted to know the things that gave her joy in life. I wanted to know about her background. I wanted to know about her family. I wanted to know all these things about her. So I would spend time with her to get to know her. Now that we've been married almost 45 years, I still don't know everything about my wife. And so I still love to spend time with her. I still love to talk to her. I still like to have these conversations with her. Because each day I get to know her better and better. That's what our relationship with Jesus should be like. You know, so many of us think, that, well, man, I've read the Bible 50 times. I've read the Bible 100 times. Why do I need to keep reading the Bible? I want to ask you to, as you read the Bible, to think of it in a little different terms. I want you to think about it, the fact that Jesus, or that God is speaking to you through his word. That's the primary way he communicates with you. It's the primary way that he reveals who he is. And so as you read the Bible, don't just read it for information, but ask this question, what does this passage tell me about who God is? How can I get to know God better as I read my Bible? So get to know God through his word. The second thing, surprise prayer, right? Never told you to pray before either, right? This is something new. You guys don't know anything about this, right? Same thing's kind of true. I, I think prayer is kind of like my relationship with my wife, too. If all I ever did was talk to her to ask her for something, she wouldn't want to hear from me after a while, right? I can't blame her. If that's all I ever wanted to do is to get something from her. And yet, how many of us approach God like that? The only time we ever talk to him is when we want something from him. Now, fortunately, God's not a human being. God won't turn us away. He won't say, I'll never listen to you again. He won't say, I'm tired of you talking to me. But there's a sense on which we miss out on this, this intimacy that we could have with God. If we would think about prayer as a conversation that we have about God. And here's, here's how I would suggest that you might want to approach this. Not the only way, but 
but maybe something that will be helpful to you. You open up your Bible, and you say, God, thank you for this salvation that I have through Jesus. I'm thankful that that it's 100% sure. I'm thankful that it's guaranteed. And you begin to read God's Word. And as you come to some nugget there and you learn, oh, God, thank you that you are holy or thank you that you are righteous. Thank you that you will never leave me or forsake me because that's your nature. And then as you think about who God is, you begin to think about your own life and you think, how does that apply to my situation in life right now? And then you begin to use that and and you thank God for working in your life and you ask him to help you to understand your, your situation from his perspective, knowing his character. I was thinking about an example of how you might do that this morning. I was thinking about you guys are all familiar with the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And they're thrown into the fiery furnace, and it says there's a fourth one with them who is Jesus. And let's say you're reading that passage, and the thing I would take out of that is that God might not always take me out of the difficulties. They were thrown in the fire, but that he'll always be with me when I'm in there. And then I can think about it. Once I know that, I say, God, thank you that you'll never leave me or forsake me. And maybe I'm going through some difficult thing in my life. And I say to, to God, thank you. I know you might not take me out of this situation, but thank you that you're in it with me. And that, So have those kind of conversations with God, not just asking for things. Finally, one more thing that you've never heard from me ever before. Spend time with other disciples. No doubt there's a... There's an individual aspect of our salvation here. I mean, you can't decide for someone else whether or not to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Each one of us have to make that decision on their own. But there's also a, there's a corporate aspect to our faith, too, isn't there? We're going to get to that. When we get to Hebrews chapter 10, the writer's going to talk about that in a lot more detail. But the fact is, Jesus never intended us to live our lives as disciples of Jesus on our own. That's why the very moment that we put our faith in Jesus Christ, what does he do? He immerses us into this body that we call the church because he wants us to live out our faith on our own, and it helps us to to draw near to God in a way that we can't just do on our own. There's a a synergy that happens. I, I don't know about you, but I sensed that this morning when we were singing together, when we were singing Rest on Us, that there was just something about us singing that to song together that, that drew us near to God in a way that probably would never happen if we were just doing it on our own. And that happens when we study the Bible together. It happens when we worship together. It happens, it happens when we just get together and spend time together and have a meal together or a cup of coffee together. So we need to spend time with other disciples. Now, as always, I think there's something that that all of us can take out of this passage this morning. There's some way that every single one of us need to apply this message. There could be some of you here this morning who have never put your faith in Jesus for the first time. You've never drawn near to God through Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, you're missing out on this this guarantee that Jesus gives us to save us to the uttermost. And I don't want you to go through life like that. I don't want you to doubt whether you have a relationship with God. So I encourage you this morning, put your faith in Jesus for the first time. Now, for most of us, it's probably more of a matter of of taking and applying some of these other principles that we've looked at this morning. 
I think all of us, from time to time, we need to have a whole new mindset about how we read the Bible and about how we pray sometimes. I, I have to do that. I have to constantly remind myself of some of the things that we've talked about this morning. And maybe you need to do that in your life. Maybe you need to find a way to gather together with other disciples of Jesus more frequently. Maybe it's staying for the Bible roundtable after, after the worship service or, or men coming next Saturday morning and being with us at the men's breakfast and, and spending time with other people or coming on a Monday morning to our Bible study. Whatever it is, I pray that you'll do whatever God would lead you to do this morning. The fact is that, that in this world, there are no guarantees. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, he gives us an ironclad, lifetime guarantee that if we will draw near to him through Jesus, that if we will draw near to God through Jesus, that we will find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the salvation that Jesus provides is 100% guaranteed. Thank you that because he's a perfect high priest, one whose life and death and new life all make him the only sufficient priest for us, Father, that we can rely 100% upon him. So I pray this morning, Father, especially for anyone who's never put his or her faith in Jesus, pray today that they would make that decision. Pray today that you would draw them because I know without you drawing them, Father, there's no way they can do that. So I pray that they would listen to your Holy Spirit as you speak to their hearts. And for the rest of us, Father, help us to take advantage of that great privilege that we have to draw near to you boldly and confidently. We ask it in Jesus' name.